What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lo Thomas, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Not just the history, but how this music continues to evolve, shaping lives, shaking rafters, and ingraining itself into our culture. We're opening the vault on a recent classic records re-release, delving into its inner workings and lasting impact. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener and you're curious to hear more. Either way, you're in the right place. Find us at Consequence of Sound, iTunes, or wherever you tune into podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith With. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org, Consequence of Sounds, and the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, Take a second before we get started here to hit that subscribe button that's right in front of you. Whether you're listening on Spotify, on YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcast from, you can subscribe there as well. That way you can keep up with uh, all the interviews we put out here every single week. I'm Kyle Meredith. Uh, It's a special episode, a trio episode. What do the bands James, The Church, and Big Country all have in common? I mean, they probably have a few things in common, but today we're going to tie them all together with the year 1988. They all had albums come out in 1988. The Church, that was their uh, monster record, Starfish. Big Country put out Peace in Our Time, which was an odd record for them. We'll talk about all of that. And James, they also had a record out that year called Strip Mine, which I will be talking with Tim Booth about. Now, we'll start with James because they actually have some new music as well that I want to discuss with Tim, Living in Extraordinary Times. Tim and I are going to be talking about the uh, political and humanitarian themes that run throughout this, especially with uh, a song like Many Faces. And then, as I mentioned, after that, we'll head back to 1988 to discuss a little bit of their record, Strip Mine, and what the environment was like around that time for the band. The Church on the Way, Big Country after that. Right now, it's Kyle Meredith with James. How are you doing? Uh, doing all right. Excited to be talking with you. Uh, loving this new record. I mean, I've loved so many of your records, but it's really exciting to hear this new one as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah we're very proud of this one. Living in extraordinary times. I feel like anybody who's paid attention to anything kind of understands that title, but I thought we'd start there and, and just ask, like, for you personally, what makes these extraordinary times? It's like we went down some kind of wormhole about two or three years ago, some kind of into a, a, a Philip Dick alternative universe where everything is, we're in the upside down, you know, we're, we're in um, Stranger Things upside down. Everything, it, all the kind of things we assumed 
we're heading in the right direction from kind of equality rights for for all races, all sexes suddenly look like they're on hold when you have a, a, a president of the most powerful country in the world who is clearly not in tune with any of those things and is a you know outspoken racist and and liar really basically any kind of values have gone have been turned on their heads and this the same in england too we have this kind of um brexit issue both issues really trump and brexit weaken the union and say in europe weaken america's power in the world uh, and benefit russia so both seem to really benefit russia at the moment there seems to be a rise going on there for uh, a score for Putin on on some on some level or another. So we we yeah we everything seems to be turned upside down in terms of you know where we thought it was going. It's all about expectation to some degree. And the the rise of AI, the rise of technology to eavesdrop on us, the the whole kind of algorithmic world that we're moving into is a really strange world that's that's coming. Well charted, I think, by different writers. Yeah, well, it's really impressive how you worked all of that into your songs, because that's not easy. That's no easy feat to try to do that in, in a poetic way, in a melodic way, in the way you know that you've pulled off on this new record. And I, I know there are more than just political songs on this record. You know, there are. It sounds what seems like personal songs too. But with those songs, do you feel like there's a difference in how you're writing? songs that are reflective of the world around us in these political natures uh, versus the way you might have in the past? Not really. Uh, and I didn't set out to write political songs. What, what I do, all our songs are written through improvisation. And just these, these issues were happening at the time. And the, the levels of deceit and deception and open kind of um, hypocrisy was, has become more and more transparent. And so it's been affecting me. You know? uh, and when it affects me, it ends up coming out in my writing. It, it isn't like I sit down to write a political song. It's like I'm sitting down to write a lyric to a song I've created through improvisation. And the lyric is telling me what it wants to be about. So it, it, they're not conscious. I've only ever written eight political songs, I think, in my life out of 250. <laughs> it's not a genre I'm a big fan of at all. It's just that you can't help it if you're writing from your gut, you can't help but react to what's going on in the world right now. It's, it's so strong, the power shifts that are taking place. I mean, you have some of the most powerful songs out there that, that do find themselves, you know, in this realm. Uh, I've heard you talk about and, and call out songs like uh, This Is America, uh, you know, what Beyonce was doing on Lemonade. When you have songs like this that do arrive in whatever fashion they arrive in, is there any kind of, do you use other songs like that as any kind of barometer to say, well, that's 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 their playmates. That's you know, that's the era that they're all living in together. No, I just recognise that as artists, you know, and you could cite Eminem's song too, or some of them. Um, you 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 don't have any choice. It, it that's what you are. You're if you're if you're really coming from your unconscious or from your gut or whatever you want to label it, you reflect the times you live in, and um, to some degree, you know. And of course, there's tons of me in there. And, we, I can't get away from my own ego like anybody else, just like everybody else. But um, Nina Simone, I think she said, you know, when she was criticized at the time for writing civil rights anthems, you know, an artist's job, she said, is to reflect the times they live in. I don't go that far. I think an artist's job is to reflect themselves and their reaction to what's going on around them in the most honest way they possibly can. 
And an artist's job, I think, is to go into the unconscious because we are 95% unconscious, 5% conscious. And so the rich stuff is in the unconscious. So I write and see what comes out. Almost stream of consciousness. Often at four o'clock in the morning, I wake up with lyrics or I, I stand in front of a microphone and just start improvising. And then you kind of like see what you've written about. And it's like, oh, seems like this song wants to be about this. I, I, I don't consciously choose it. If I did, James would be a much more successful band because <laughs> I've sabotaged I've sabotaged a number of our, of our most melodic songs by putting in some lyric that was too heavy for the for the song to become a pop song, you know? Well, I, I, I'll have to argue that a little bit because you've got a lot of classic songs out there uh, that said... Uh... What I mean is that pop songs, I don't mean pop as in necessarily a good thing, but like on Hey Ma, the most mm-hmm. the catchy song on the record had the chorus, Hey Ma, the boys in body bags coming home in pieces. <laughs> and it, it was written about the Iraq war, which was going on at the time. It was one of my other, other one of the other eight political songs. <laughs> And yet, it, you know, if I'd written about love in that same melody, that song would have been released as a single. But because I'd written about politics, it couldn't be released as a single. Uh, That's what I mean. It's right. like sometimes I sabotage, you know, I have to just be true to whatever comes out of me. And I am true to what comes out of me. And sometimes the lyric isn't the lyric that would would help us financially <laughs> or help James become successful, you know. Well, I could uh, I could close my eyes and basically point to any song on this record to ask about, but it seems like one of the ones that's really stood out for everybody is Many Faces. I mean, this is such a powerful moment and feels like it's become its own instant classic, you know, with a strong message still attacked that is reflective of the time that could have been at any time, uh, I suppose. Uh, I don't know if you count that as one of your eights, but, you know, it's um, it's definitely of the era. What what? How did that one come about? I mean, that line, too, you know, that, that refrain line that you repeat. Where, where do you think that came from within you? I, I know kind of what inspired it at the time. It, it was a political thing. It was Trump talking about the wall with Mexicans and, and how they're rapists and, you know, all that racist tweets he sent out at the time. And so I wrote this line, there's only one human race, many faces, everybody belongs here. But that, interestingly, I don't think is a political song, even though its inspiration was reacting to something that really deeply offended me. Racism deeply, deeply offensive, I find, at all times. And so it came from a political instant, but it's not a political song. It's a song of unity. It's a song about if we don't change our consciousness and stop looking at our differences and defining ourselves by our tribes, whether it be white, black or English, American, and start to see our common humanity, we're screwed. We're done. You know, we've developed such capabilities of destroying ourselves by many different means, whether it be climate change or nuclear options, that if we don't come together and and see our similarities, we're done um, in the next, you know, 50, 100 years. And so the need and the call for love or for raising our consciousness to seeing our, our similarity, uh, raising it above fear, it's very obvious in many ways, a real, you know, could be a hallmark card um, in its cliche in one sense, but it's sometimes those cliches have a real truth to them. And so, it, yeah, we started playing that song before it came out, before it was released, and the audience would, like, people would just burst into tears in the audience and then start singing it back at us when we'd finished the song, even though it was a song they'd never heard before. So we've had incredible reactions to that song, which has probably been the strongest reactions to a new song we've ever had, actually. 
Yeah, I, I imagine that's such a powerful moment in that show. And, you know, I'll, I'll echo that, too, by saying the same thing happened to me. I mean, I had it in the earbuds just walking around the first time I heard the record. And before the song was over, I was already singing it. I was singing it that night when I went to bed. You know, that's that's huh. that's what you look for in music Sweet. are those moments right there. And it's it's a kind of five or six minute song that on the album isn't structured. You only get the chorus at the end of the song. Right. You know, typical James, James, shoot yourself in the foot moment, you know. We, we've actually done a single version of it where we, we bring in the chorus a little earlier because every song we do is improvised. So that one I structured originally. It came from a jam that we might have jammed for 45 minutes and I choose a bit from 10 minutes in and a bit from 22 minutes in and then maybe a bit from 40 minutes in and then you see if you can bring them together. And we didn't really change it from that original structure. So it's kind of one, two, three, four in terms of structure. And we like those structures. We call them journey structures rather than traditional verse, chorus, verse, chorus, mid-late chorus, mm-hmm. which is too boring and predictable most of the time. So we, we, left that, we left that structure. We couldn't, at the time, we couldn't find a different one and we left it as is. But we are going to do a, a slightly more predictable <laughs> version, I think, for, re- for radio because we want that one to get out as a single because it's, it's, it's chosen itself. The audience have chosen that song really in their reaction for it to be a single, so we want to give it the help that it needs. Well, I'll bring up another one, too, kind of in that same mindset, uh, talking about great music structure and everything. The groove on the song Heads is so infectious. Like, just the way oh, that kind of marches along, I think, you know? I'm so happy you, you pulled out those two. Those are probably the sonic extremes of the album. And Heads was it probably we. It's one of our, as a band, favorite songs on the album because it doesn't sound like us because right. it's 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 in an it's in an area we've never been in before and after 34 years you know that's what turns you on to some degree is trying to get into areas that you've never been in before we got in this young engineer who was just helping me edit he was just working the technology um to help me edit and after a few days i said do you want to have a go at messing around with some of these songs because they've they've all been recorded to drum boring drum machines and we need to change the rhythms can you kind of mess them up and he was like sure <laughs> and, and he stepped and he messed up the rhythms beautifully and the second one he did was head and it had us giggling with laughter like every time i put that i, I went and heard, heard it when he'd done it put him in a room for you know a few hours with all he had was his hands hitting a table and dropping an iPhone in record and shaking water bottles to make that percussion originally. Wow. And he got the, he got the outline. We, we overdubbed stuff in the studio to make it more, uh, to get it fuller and richer. But that was the original thing was like water bottles and dropped iPhones and hands beating a table. And when he played it to each member of the band, we all burst out laughing at exactly the same moment in the song. Um, it was so kind of like, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and that, that's, that's a full-on political song. There's, there's two on the record. And that, that is, but it's got a real optimism at the end. The end is a kind of a, it's what, where humanity has to go. It has to be more sharing and more open and more connected. In its, it, so the end section starts, here's the dream, either we tapestry you know it's like realizing we're all connected and that if we don't get into this state of unity we're, we're done <laughs> well i, I want to um sort of take how the album ends and you know connect the pa- uh, present to the past too uh the album ends with a question you know what's it all about ha. and great yeah and maybe you did that on purpose i hope you did that on purpose a little bit <laughs> you know? uh, uh, I, I always wanted that song to be the last song on the record. It's, it's a, um, I, you know, I like, I like your choices of song. 
it, it's a it's a six seven minute song. It's a real journey song. I edited that one um, from a, an hour jam, and we had so many parts. I wanted to get it get into the song, so it ended up being a long song, and it holds. It kind of works. Some some journey songs you go, no, you can't get all those parts in. You have to drop something. But this one, I got all the bits I wanted in. And live, it's a monster. You know, it can go on for 10, 10 12 minutes live because we improvise when we play it live. So your question is, yeah, is I end the album on a question, which is probably the right thing to do, isn't it, really? Because we're in the middle of this huge changes that are going on. You know, we're in the middle of this poison that is also creating a lot of, Medicine, Black Lives Matter, the women's movement, um, the kids from Florida, Esther Perel as a writer on relationships, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, you know, Noah Harari's Sapiens and all his, I'm reading his recent book, it's incredible, um, on, on how algorithms are going to be controlling our lives. So the medicine, is, the medicines are coming through as well as uh, the poisons are becoming more explicit and more uh, outed because Trump is only really saying what was always going on behind closed doors anyway. But now it's out there. And hopefully, you know, we'll get through this. But it's, uh, and, and the album is optimistic. It's a very uplifting record. But in the end, you've got to go, what's it all about? <laughs> well, that's, like, a... that's probably the most honest reaction to the chaos and craziness that we're witnessing right now. Yeah. Well, that's it. You, you take how, that, how this album ends. And then you back up exactly 30 years. Uh, this is when Strip Mine was released, and you get the opening song there with What For, which in a different mm. time, as, as I understand it, almost asks a very similar question, you know, as the, uh, as the narrator in that song is a man who's, you know, either down on his luck or in a bad spot or whatever, and he, he looks up in the sky, and that's the question there, too. What for? You know, what, what, why? Yeah, that, that's, you know, I, I've had to accept recently that one of my prime directives you know i think people come into these these lives with real strong inbuilt motivations and mine has always been trying to work out what what what's it for why what are we doing here is there an intelligence to life you know i i came in with that one and it's always been a, a major part of my journey really hence you know all the crazy stuff i do in my private life with you know i you know i've been meditating since i was 21 when when being a meditating singer in a rock and roll band was very, very uncool. And, and, and I teach a dance movement that takes people into trance states. I go into trance states myself. I, you know, I, I like medicine, medicine journeys I, I believe in. I, I, you get to some really interesting altered states. And sometimes when you meditate for days and days, the same thing happens. And so I've always had that kind of drive to try and get under the skin of life and find out what, what the hell's going on. And in the end, you only find answers for yourself. You don't find like, religions, <laughs> which I just think it just one size doesn't fit all, really. And I think it's much more interesting to go on your own journey and find your own answers. And making music is one of my, my, one of my tools for self-expression and self-discovery. Um, and and we're, we're passionate about what we do. Well, I hope you don't mind spending a little bit of time in that past, as I do like to ask about the big anniversary albums, you know, when they come around. But that album, Strip Mine, just to ask a, a couple questions about it, you know, it's, it, it is funny how time and context can totally change how a song sounds. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't listening to this kind of music in 1988. I mean, I, I, for me, I was seven or eight years old by the time this record came out. Uh, I wasn't bogged down with the context, you know, what, whatever the first album did or didn't do it, how it was recorded. So when I hear that now, you know, it was one of the first times of going finally back and listening to that one. 
it's such a great record and as good as anything you've done, but I, I expect that you probably hear that record different having been in the situation that led into it. I, I think, I mean, one of, we put everything into every record and I, I don't really have a record I don't love. Um, I have a lot of actor friends and at one point, you know, I was trained as an actor and I, I was doing quite well as an actor. But you don't get to choose your part. And they all are so frustrated, even the great ones I know, because for years they might not get a juicy part. And the great thing about James is we haven't released a song we haven't loved. And I've written every lyric and, and, and I write from what's going on for me and they reflect me at different times in my life. But we put a ton into what we do. So no, when I hear Strip Mine, I hear the naivety there. I hear an innocent. I hear some production things that weren't quite satisfactory. But generally, I'm really proud of a lot of those songs because they reflect us at the time and, and the people we, we were working with at the time and, you know, our stage of development. Yeah, well, those songs are so shout-out-loud and singable, really an enjoyable listen. And, and looking, you know, like I, I was finding the reviews and everything, and I thought what an interesting contrast about what was happening in the press as far as how this album was received versus, you know, the building success that you all were having on the live show. Like, I don't have a lot of other bands I can compare that to where this album feels like what it looks like at the time almost went unheard, even as you you all were rising and rising and becoming so much bigger. It's kind of mind-blowing, I guess. Yeah, it, it was audiences, you know, we always wanted to make it from live. We originally, James, didn't want to release records at all we were very naive um the real test of a great band is how good they are live how authentic they are how spontaneous how in the moment and so when factory came and said we want to do a single with you or an album we were like no we don't want to release records but then we couldn't get gigs without a record so we were like okay we'll do a single not an album no just a single (laughs) and then they came back after that can we do an album no another single and so we were really parsimonious and um Foolish is probably a better word for it, um, with how we were approaching things. But the live audiences built up because they got that we were offering something different, which I think we still do. You know, we're not the Grateful Dead. We don't jam for hours and hours, but we do improvise and we do change the set every night. And we have hundreds of you know, songs in rotation, or probably not hundreds, but 90 that we can call on quite quickly to play. And we might change the set mid-set. Mid if it's not working and we changed the, the gig is different in Seattle than it would be in LA or in London on a Friday night, different to a gig on a Monday night. And that's why people keep coming back to us because we are always looking for that spontaneous communication where it's alive. It's not a theater act where we're doing the same set night after night after night, where basically it becomes a dead thing. It's, it's an interreactive experiment with the people in the room. And we react to the audience and how they listen to us and they react to us. And then the thing grows and it's organic and it's very exciting. Mm -hmm. And that's why we survived 34 years. This album's getting the best reviews we probably ever had, talking of reviews, which because, you know, we've, we've not been the press darlings because we've been an awkward band to place anywhere. You know, we didn't fit in the Manchester scene, even though they tried, you know, we geographically came from Manchester. We didn't fit in Britpop. They tried to fit us there. The Smiths tried to, you know, they tried to link us with the Smiths, but we came before the Smiths. So James has always been a pretty bloody-minded, idiosyncratic band, and hence we've lasted, I think. 34 years, and to have, you know, so many different entry points for so many different 
generations of listeners, uh, this new record is going to be one of those. You know, you're going to have the fans that this was the first time they heard James, and that's that's still got to be a beautiful moment. It's wonderful. It, the, the last three uh, three albums, including this one, we've been getting a younger and younger audience because I think we've been we we've wanted more grooves in the song. I've always, you know, I'm a dan- I love dancing, so I always love some kind of groove. I'm not talking about real straightforward dance grooves, but just the dr- you know, the drummer went a bit more towards grooves, the bass player got a bit sexier and dirtier, Jimmy did, and that's the way we went. And our keyboard player who's very shy and retiring used to be play so quietly no one could hear him. We insist now on him being turned up. And that's been the big sonic change of the last three albums, I think, that we've we've got a bit of a bit of a groove in there nowadays, which, you know, when you talk about heads, it's in there. Although this album's gone gone back away from dance, but to more kind of mad grooves, really unusual grooves, but not not dance one, uh, as you'll hear when if you play heads on your podcast. Well, we're definitely big fans uh, here, uh, especially of these last three records. They've just been so really fun and great, and I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about all of these. Um, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time, and congratulations on uh, living in extraordinary times. I can't wait to hear what comes next after this, too. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're already writing. Thanks. All right. Thank you. We'll see you around. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. My thanks to Tim Booth of the band James. Again, the new record is called Living in Extraordinary Times. Now, sticking with the 1988 theme as we look back at 30th anniversaries, I get to catch up with Steve Kilby of the band Church. Now, their record Starfish is one of the bona fide classics of all time, not just of 88 or the 80s, but of all time, uh, given us songs like Under the Milky Way and Reptile. Steve and I are going to discuss the uh, unique sound that the church was able to craft, uh, going against the zeitgeist, as he puts it, and how they went on to influence bands like the Smashing Pumpkins and Green Day and the Killers, writing with ambiguity, and the influence that Tom Verlaine of television had on the band. It's Kyle Meredith with Steve Kilby of The Church. Hello. So uh, I figure what we do is jump back into the time machine in 1988, which uh, I feel like is probably a year that you get pulled back to. Been talking about that year a lot lately. And 1987, which is the year we did it, the year we made it. Let's go back to Starfish because, you know, it's not only, uh, you know, a big moment in, in your career. It's still one of the greatest albums of all time. You know, as, as we hear it these days, as people still talk about it, as I still listen to it. How does it sound to you these days, 30 years later? What's the, what's the effect it has on you at this point? I think it sounds pretty good. I think there's a, there's a little... Um, it's funny because we were learning it the other day and, and we were playing it back, you know, let's have a listen to the track before. And I thought it was... Uh, it had stayed away from a lot of the things that ruined 80s records. For example, a great big snare drum going... <laughs> <laughs> punctuating every song unnecessarily with a right. So it didn't have that. It didn't have the over over reliance on a huge snare drum ruining every song. Um, it doesn't have um, that horrible DX7 keyboard sound. A lot of uh, a lot of records had, and um, I don't know. Yeah, it's sort of like I think it's a record could have been made last year or could have been made in sort of 1978. You know, it's a sort of a it's what the church always try and do. So we try and make classic albums that could come from any time at all. We don't adhere to the zeitgeist. We're not interested in the zeitgeist. If I went in the studio now and some guy said, oh, you've got to do this and got to do this and got to do this. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. 
I'm adhering to a classic type of rock and roll, which is the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan and Bowie. And, you know, um, I want my stuff to sound like that. So because you can still listen to those records and you can still enjoy them. But if you put on stuff that was made in, in a lot of stuff that was made in, especially in the 80s. And it's unlistenable because of the zeitgeist, because of what people thought records should sound like. You know, a lot of bands at that time didn't know that they were falling victim to that. But do you remember like... No, nobody does. Yeah. Like, how did you escape it when everybody That's else didn't? Thing. You know, C.S. Lewis, have you ever heard of him? He wrote oh, yeah. Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote a very famous little axiom, and he said, a lot of good men and good women have fallen victim to the zeitgeist. And he wasn't talking about music, but it's very few people are aware that they are operating within a zeitgeist. I can look at it now in 2018 and go, there was a zeitgeist going on then that was ruining things. And you and everybody else around can go, yeah, yeah, look at that. But in 1988, if you tried to talk about, I don't want to do this, I don't want to have this, I don't want this on my record, people didn't know what you meant. People couldn't understand. It's so easy with hindsight to see all this stuff but like um so i was i was sort of like i was sort of fighting against it in a kind of a in a sort of a fog you know what i mean because it was hard to hard to find any anyone to to be my ally in this fight so i was fighting against it and i didn't really have i wasn't quite aware of what was going on except inside me something was always going don't make a record that sounds like that don't have this kind of thing in your music it's very hard to articulate, and I think it, it always is. And I think that's what really great artists do is is they rebel against the zeitgeist, and then they create they create their own zeitgeist or the next zeitgeist. Which this album certainly did afterwards. I mean, the influence it's had on other bands that have sort of, you know, taken their yeah. own versions. I think there are bands who have been influenced by the church. And there are bands out there who admit they've been influenced by the church or really like the church. Some big bands like Smashing Pumpkins, The Killers, Green Day. I just read an interview with Mike Dirt, and he said the best show he ever saw. I mean, that's Mike Dirt from Green Day he said the best show he ever saw was the church. I saw an interview with Billy Joe from Green Day. I, I mean, God knows. And he said, when you want to talk about a guitar with a band with a two guard, two guitar attack, go no further than the church. They they sort of did it all and completely mesmerised him when he was a kid. But I don't know if I, I don't know if, if it's starfish that influenced them or just everything we've ever done. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe probably starfish is is often the I guess the starting point for most people with the church, especially in America. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, you know, and I'll say one of the things that's always attracted me to the church is how it feels like you create an atmosphere more than a story, which I think you said that that's one of the things that you do try for, you know, that maybe you've made a career out of that. Yeah, it is. Look, you know, you can get you can get a song with three verses, you know, and, and a chorus. That's not very many words. You try and like you try and write a story with the amount with the economy that that a songwriter usually has. It's really hard to do. So what you really want to do is create a sort of an ambiguous backdrop. The words become just some clues. So instead of here's the whole story told to you in a, in a linear fashion like a storyteller, 
you slur in some clues with the words, and then the music fleshes it all out and gives you a kind of a, a background. And if you're really successful, the background suits everybody who hears it. So everybody who listens to that listens to that song interprets it differently. I remember there was an aftershave being touted around about 20 years ago. It said, every man who wears it will smell different. And I thought, that's a great idea. That's what I want with my songs. Every, every person who hears this song will get something different out of it, and yet it will be personal to them and poignant, and won't, but whatever I intended won't contradict that. And everybody can, because I found that the music, when I first felt that happening to me, when I first felt people, like I'd hear a song and go, God, he's written this song for me. Suddenly I had this connection to something else or somebody else which was almost spiritual in its nature. And if you go along and see a band or a piece of music or, or any piece of art that sort of connects you to something else and you go, oh, I've always felt like this, but I didn't have the words to articulate it. I can't believe somebody else could have felt like that. I think that's a really important thing to pull off. And I think if the story is too precise or the instrumentation is just one thing i think you're sort of ruining the the possible ambiguity you know not everybody is working in ambiguity you know bruce springsteen right right i'm born in the usa you know i was went went down to vietnam had to fight the yellow man you know he's not in this case there's someone not not working in, in ambiguity at all and there's nothing wrong with that I'm not saying anybody, there are many different things to do to do with a song, and I'm not saying ambiguity is the big be-all and end-all, but it is for me. So the one thing I'm always going for with everything I do is ambiguity, but not, you see, there's a fine line between ambiguity and meaninglessness. And a lot of people can look at really good ambiguity and go, oh, that's just meaningless. You can just write any old stuff. But that doesn't work. The ambiguity, you have to push the ambiguity as far as you can take it, but it still has to have meaning. And that's quite a sort of a trick to pull off. I gave this compliment to another artist the other day, uh, Kristen Hirsch from Throwing Muses, um, which I think is the only person I've ever said this to. And I'll throw it at you with just much as much meaning that when I listen to your music, and, and we'll stick around with this record in particular right now with Starfish, I always don't feel like I have to hang on to every word for a lot of the reasons you're saying, because it's the feeling coming out. You know, obviously we can hit on the feelings of Under the Milky Way or, or Reptile, but especially for me lately with Antenna or Hotel Womb, you know, these are songs that I don't think I could sit here and recite to you anything about those songs lyrically, but I can tell you how I feel about those songs and how those songs make me feel. And that's my favorite things about them. Exactly. You know what? I discovered this. Um, a band called the Triffids, their lead singer died. I've been listening to one particular Triffids album that we were doing in its entirety. I was asked to sing four songs, and I thought, I know all those songs like the back of my hand. Why? I've listened to them 500 times each. And yet when I started singing them, I realized I didn't know the words at all. And I was surprised to find out what the words were and what was happening. And every time I'd sit down to learn the words and listen to the song, once again, the song would wash over me in this beautiful dreamlike way. 
and I didn't ever realise what any of the individual words are. So that's the mark of a really good song, a song you've listened to a million times and you still don't know what the words are. And, you know, sometimes I don't want to know what the words are. Right. Some record companies say to me, let's put your lyrics on the album. I go, no, I don't want people to know the, the lyrics. I, and they, and he, they go, oh, yeah, but people like to read the lyrics on an album. And I go, yeah, but people would also like to know how a magician does his trick. <laughs> like, how does he get the rabbit out of his sleeve? But you don't go and tell them. You leave things, they will enjoy it more. The, mus- the, the, the records I enjoy the most are the ones I still don't really know all the words to. You know, I still don't even really know what Mick Jagger's singing in Brown Sugar some of that stuff. I, I don't really want to know. I, I'm just happy to let it be as it is. It's sort of having, I, I have, I've judged that when you don't have the words in front of you and you're not necessarily conscious of what they all are. But it's, the whole thing just kind of washes over you in this amazing way and can transport you somewhere that, as many people have said, no other art form. I mean, a picture hanging on a wall can't do that. I'm sorry, nor can a fucking poem on a page, nor can, in my humble opinion, nor can a ballet or even a film or even the best book. None of them can do what a piece of music can do because a piece of music is something else. And even the musicians themselves don't. I've been playing bass for 50 years. I still don't know how it works. (laughs) I don't know why. If I no, I don't. If I play this and why that, why does this? I'm always trying to analyse it. What? How does this all work? How's it all being put together? Why is it when a certain combination of notes and words and beats and it sort of hits this point and suddenly you get those shivers up your spine and you you still feel like you're in the presence of God or something? I I don't know how that's done. But I'm sort of, I'm always looking for it. Once having experienced that, once I apprehended music that could do that, I could never settle for sort of, you know, what my brother said to me once, you hate anything that's jolly or merry. And I said, exactly. Don't ever fucking play jolly or merry music to me. I don't want to hear it. You know, um, looking around that time, too, you had a couple of of what I read anyway were your heroes, you know, on tour with you, Peter Murphy. Tom Verlaine, which I think a lot of the things that you're talking about could be associated with them just as much, right? Okay, um, slight slight error there. Uh-huh. Tom Verlaine, yes, was my hero. Peter Murphy was not my hero, and um, not at all. He was just a guy. No, I didn't know much about him at all. I knew he was in a band called Bauhaus, and I'd seen him once on TV doing Ziggy Stardust, which I thought was a pretty bold move. And he, he was a pretty cool-looking guy, but not my hero. But Tom Verlaine definitely was, yes. And he came on tour with us, yes. What was that like? Because, again, that's that's what I'm talking like. Here's someone who might have had a certain amount of influence in the way that you're talking about now. And, you know, it's it's the fourth wall is cut down. The mystique is, you know, personalized, humanized, whatever you want to say. Did it, Were those moments ever happening like that? Oh, yeah. Um, Tom Verlaine was the total opposite of everything I ever expected him to be. He was a, like a real, he was, but he was like a character from, from the old days. It, like even in, in 1988, he was like, he was like, we go at the breakfast and go, uh, Kilby, you know those uh, French fries we shared? And I go, yeah. He say, 
well, seem like you ate a lot more than me. So uh, I don't see why I should go halves with you on them. You know, it was like that. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? You know what I mean? He was sort of like, he was real um, nickel and dime sort of guy. And he smoked a lot of cigarettes. He drank a lot of coffee. And he was very edgy and wired and sort of, he was he was so suspicious of everything that almost nothing could happen. However strange he was as a person, every night when he was with us, he would come on and play lead guitar and we'd do these three lengthy jams with Tom and we'd have three lead guitarists. But of course, our guys would defer to him and... Um, he would just plug straight in a, um, a guitar into a Fender amp and he was doing stuff. Nobody even knew how he was doing it. He had no effects, no effects pedals or anything. And he was just having him playing with us was just incredible. It, it was an absolute, you know, that's, that's, that's definitely my career highlights, having, having him join us. And a lot of the audience didn't even know who he was because right. they they, the audience in 1988 had forgotten who television were. Which is a shame. But luckily, that came back around again. You know, I feel like history has has given him the recognition, the the just recognition. Oh yeah, he's um in in the churches in the churches canon. He's television is right up there. Yeah, like a lot of people, a lot of people go, oh yeah, you guys really influenced by the birds. Yeah, the birds we love, but television more. Television certainly influenced me more than the birds. I sort of started getting into the birds more when everybody started telling me I sounded like the birds. I'd go back and listen. But definitely television and the the things they were doing with two guitars. And, you know, it's easy in 2008 or, you know, being a musicologist, it's easy to go, oh, yeah, a band with two guitarists and they're using them sort of orchestrally, like they're playing in the spaces where the other one isn't playing or they're using completely different tones and they're kind of doing counterpoints and seemingly random things. Now that seems like, yeah, yeah, anyone would know that. But I tell you what, before television, you go back and there's an awful lot of stuff where one guy's going, bam, 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 and the other guy's going, playing a lead solo over the top. But going back and trying to find bands that really had this sort of two guitar pronged attack, and not like Wishbone Ash either, which is like harmony lead guitars. That's another, well, that's another thing altogether, and that's valid as well. But this is the idea of like two guitars doing two completely different pointillistic things, and the sort of the bass comes in the middle. When you hear television, then they were the first guys doing that, to my knowledge. You know, of course, the Beatles and the Stones and other people always touched on that with their two guitar things. But television were like, to me, television were a, a revelation, and so were the lyrics. So I, I was really, really impressed with that first television album. It, it, I sort of, I sucked every idea I could get out of it dry, for sure. Just for what it's worth, side note here, uh, I just had Roger McGuinn on the telephone yesterday. And I'll have David Crosby uh-huh. uh, next week, so it's floating around there in the universe uh-huh. anyway. So yeah, <laughs> well, I, I have nothing. I, I, David David Crosby and Roger McGuinn are absolute titans, giants, br- both brilliant men, brilliant brilliant songwriters, brilliant. The, Roger with without Roger McGuinn, you've got no Tom Petty. Right, Roger McGuinn. I, I in my own sort of personal universe, I put. 
I have Dylan, the Beatles and the Stones as a triad of sort of the greats. And just slightly under that, I have the birds weighing in because of all the stuff they brought to, to sort of rock and roll, in my opinion. And the first time I ever heard Turn, 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 I, I had like a I had like a vision, a revelation of of my God. This is what music can do. It can create stuff like this. To, of course, with the biblical lyrics, the whole whole experience is completely spiritual. And when you're 11 years old and you hear a song like that, it just and you sort of attune to stuff like that. It's just absolutely mind blowing. So I. I, I just wouldn't even know. If I met those guys, I wouldn't know how to lay enough praise at their feet because I think they're absolute fucking geniuses. And that song still does that, by the way. Turn, turn, turn. Still has that emotion to it. it Never does, loses Every it. time. Yeah. Every time. I know. How's that? How can someone do something and, and every time you hear it, it's as good as the last time, if not better? It's almost impossible. It's like a Super Bowl that bounces the same height every time. You know, it's like... What a perfect thing in three minutes these guys have created this thing that you can listen to when you're 11 or you can listen to when you're 75 and you're still going to go, fuck, that's incredible. <laughs> that's quite a feat. I reckon that's amazing. No, there's not, not very, very other few things in life will last with you like that. Um, I, I'm going to pull us back just for a second, back to that 1988 uh, era, rather, to, uh, to, to finish up this part, because I think I, you and I could probably go off on this tangent for a, quite a while, <laughs> 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 which is fun. As I look back on Starfish and, and that era, and, and what I read about it is, you know, here it is, you know, the band is eight years in, I think, and, and this level of success finally gets here, but it sounds like, you know, with most bands when they're at their most successful, when you ask them what they remember about that time, all they say is the work I had to do. You know, the success is so almost, almost like, you know, just something that is created in the ether, in the press, in, in whatever. And, and the album itself lives on a parallel line beside what you're actually doing. Uh, and, and there was a lot of tension in the band at that point, right? So was it fun, you know, having that success at that point? Were you able to enjoy it? Mixed emotions, really mixed emotions. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about work and, you know, and, I, and we always say, well, that's why we do music because we're not working, we're playing music. However, on that tour, I had to start doing this thing where I had to get up every morning in the town we were in and go and visit the people who sort of worked in these big record depths. Depots where, like, it's hard to imagine in this day and age. But in those days, there were you go to these like underground bunkers, and there'd be thousands of records and people moving them around and cataloging them, counting them, and supplying all the record shops. I had to go and do that every morning. And one morning I did it, and I was so tired, I was crying. I was like having a nervous breakdown. I was crying. I was going, I can't do it. I can't do this. Uh, and people go, hi, Steve. I love Starfish. Great. And I go, oh, my God. Hey, that's great, man. I saw you last night at the thing. You were great. Um, I'm standing there crying. And that was hard work. That was hard work, it's sort of like accumulated jet lag. We had this tour schedule where we were flying around. Like we would fly from Helsinki to Rome to Minneapolis, back to England, down to Adelaide in Australia, and then back to New York and back to, then into Minneapolis again. And you get out the plane and you didn't know what 
fuck was going on? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The roadies were, everyone was so tired. The roadies were crying. I remember one morning on a Finn Air flight and our Australian roadie sitting up the front with all these Finnish businessmen who were flying from fucking Helsinki to Stockholm for the day, 8.30 in the morning, and this roadie's sitting there weeping because he's just so tired and he can't carry on, you know, doing all this work. So uh, that's what I remember. I remember that. I also remember that the conflict in the band had escalated and we weren't very nice to each other. I wasn't nice to them. They weren't nice to me and they weren't nice to each other either. So there was a sort of a lot of, there was always a kind of some sort of current of somebody's done something or somebody said something or you know what I mean. And but there, then there was the fame, there was the success, there was all of that stuff. Suddenly, ad, like some real adulation and sort of, um, you know, people treating you like you're fucking Joe Superstar. All that, all that happened. It was a lot of stuff happened at once. I think I didn't handle it very well. I think I could have handled it worse than I did, but I didn't handle it very well. If it had happened to me the way I feel now, I think I would have handled it a lot better. But at the time, it was sort of like it was so much sort of information and questions and sort of ethics and morals and sort of substance abuse and traveling and jet lag and hotels. And, you know, it's like, wow, we had a girl from Arista following us around, making sh- on our bus, making sure we had to do everything. And she, this is a terrible thing to say about myself. She said I was so rude. I never learned her name. I just used to say, "Hey Arista, what are we doing now? Hey Arista, take me." You know what I mean? Like, right. like what the fuck was I thinking? What the hell? What planet was I on that I was behaving like that? It's, you know, just how rare it is that we get to celebrate our accomplishments in the moment because of all the things that you're saying. And, and even what you were saying earlier about, you know, the um, hindsight with the zeitgeist and everything. Congratulations on twenty uh, on 30 years of Starfish, okay. and I've loved the new record as well, okay. Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. Thank I you, can't man. wait for the okay. next one. See you. Okay, thank you. Big thanks to Steve Kilby of The Church. Going down the 1988 rabbit hole with me to talk about their Starfish record. The church also have a new record that came out uh, just uh, last year, 2017, called Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. Definitely worth checking out as well. And now to my final guest for this episode, Bruce Watson of the band Big Country. Now, their 1988 record, Peace in Our Time, it's a bit of an odd record in their catalog. It had a big anthemic sound. It was made for stadiums which sort of went against all of the organic sound that they had built up before that. Bruce and I get to talk about how that happened, the environment surrounding the recording of the record, and also Russia. They are noted as one of the very first bands to ever get to play in Russia that was booked by an independent promoter. This is the 80s, Cold War era. You can kind of understand that this was probably, uh, you know, some uh, uncharted territory for a band like, uh, like Big Country. After that, we'll even discuss a little bit of how Mary Clayton ended up on the record, one of the all-time great vocalists. It's Kyle Meredith with Bruce Watson of Big Country. Hi, Kyle. How are you doing? I kind of want to head back to 1988, if you don't mind. I noticed that the Peace in Our Time record was turning 30 years old this year, and it's a record yeah. that doesn't get talked about uh, a whole lot, so I was, uh, I was hoping you'd head back in the time machine with me a little bit. Okay, don't let's do that. It sounds good. <laughs> 
It's an interesting album, too, because so I, I didn't hear it when it first came out. You know, I heard it years later. I didn't have yeah. the context of what was going on, you know, how the fans felt about it at the time. But it was always a really strong album to me. It's it's really not how history's treated it, though. And how do you feel about it these days? We'll we'll start with the easy question. You know, it's still got, it's, you know, it's like a, it was a transition period for us because we had... Um, a new American label, uh, Warner Brothers uh, Reprise label, and they got us out to record it in Los Angeles, uh, whereas all our other records were done either in England or Sweden, but the demos done in Scotland. So we prepared a lot of demos for this album, and we went out there to work with um, a producer called Peter Wilf, who's an absolute genius. But when he got the demos, he kind of he ripped them apart and <laughs> re- redid them. Uh, it was also that period in the 80s um, the Synclavia the computers were kind of and sampling was you know quite heavy whereas we were always more of an organic band it does kind of sound a little bit dated because of the recording techniques but it, you know it was great at the time I think, I think the songs are great um, and the actual demos were, were great but they were recorded really organically yeah. whereas they were just just a bit too 80s sounding <laughs> on the record you know <laughs> It does sound like, though, the, the songs, I don't know if it's production or the type of song that it is, but it does sound like you all were trying to to write songs that would be heard in, in bigger rooms. Is that the way they were meant to be from the beginning? Um, well, we recently didn't think that. Maybe the record company had maybe had a, another agenda. We could have said, you know, make them sound this way, or kind of, you know. So we, we, we can only play how we play live. You know, when you get four guys that play the same instruments in a, in a room, and you're going to get a kind of similar result. And I think maybe Peter had been given, like I say, an agenda by the label to make, make us sound a bit, I don't know, American sounding, I guess. I don't know. Um, and so it was just so different to what we'd done before. It is interesting, you know, because we've heard that story uh, a lot, how the record label gets sometimes over-involved in the creating of art and how that can, you know, I mean, there are good stories yeah. where it worked out well and there are other stories where it yeah, doesn't work definitely. out. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, we, we, we record an album and then we go out and tour the album and behind the scenes a record company can be back home getting it remixed by other people and you don't have any say over the matter because you know it's actually a way of out touring, you know. Right. right. So it's they, they basically the label owns it; they can do what they want with it, you know. Within a, within a certain certain degree. I'll bring up to, to that. I, I didn't know this until recently, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys had Mary Clayton singing the background vocals on King of Emotion. That's right. That was absolutely amazing. Yeah, how did she get involved, uh, she, and, and were you there with her when she did it? Yeah, we watched her doing it, and she was telling us all these great stories about it when she did Sympathy for the Devil with, with Mick and Keith when she was pregnant. It was absolutely amazing. She was telling us, I think Mick was holding us, her belly in. <laughs> yeah, she was fantastic. Um, we had a, a few things with um, uh, Peter's wife, Ina. She did um, backing vocals, and I think Peter had worked with... Um, uh, Mary before on certain things and he just suggested them. She came in it was like, wow, this is, we've got a legend in the studio, you know? You know, so the band had been around for, you know, eight, ten years, whatever that was at this point, somewhere in there. But I was, I was kind of wondering about the state of the band too because usually this is the part where the the gang mentality starts to splinter, you know? You, you start having your own lives and, and it becomes less about the gang and more of the band as a job. And I, I, I don't know, did it ever feel like it got to that point for you all? No, because then the four of us were away from home, we were all in it together. And we, we, we all kind of generally got on well with each other, hung out socially and stuff like that. So, um, no, it was, 
we're in a different country. We're in, we're basically we're in Hollywood for about three months, which was um, a complete culture shock to us. I mean, we'd played there before, but we never lived there before. So it was just, we just got kind of caught up in that whole LA scene, which was absolutely fantastic. It was great fun. I loved it. Well, of course, you know, speaking of places, I think that's the other part of this story, too. The other part of Peace in Our Time is, is Russia, which seemed to be a big yeah. part of that year. I recently saw that documentary, uh, you know, that, that kind of existed at the time. This was, recount why this was important, because you all were one of the first, right? Well, I mean, I think Status Quo had been out um, along with, I think Billy Joel had maybe been out there, and a few, few other bands. We weren't actually the first, there have been a few bands out there. I think Elton John possibly as well. Um, so I think we were probably about fourth in line. <laughs> uh, and it was just, it was just a, it was a mad year because we spent, you know, the, the, a good few months in Hollywood and then the record company, the British label, sent us down to Australia to do a couple of videos. And then we launched it um, at the Russian embassy in London. They went to Russia. So it was probably the, the most expensive year the band's ever <laughs> had. You know, I think we're, we're still playing for these days. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, I guess the part of the story I understand is, you know, a lot of those artists that you had you had kind of mentioned before, they, you know, there were governments working to get them there, and and the unique thing about having big country come into it, it was it was more promoter driven, more independent of the government and everything yeah, to have yeah, you all done, there. Done, yeah, I mean, we still had to jump through a lot of hoops, and there was a hell of a lot of red tape. I mean, a lot of I don't know um, what went down because it was just you know admin and red tapes. So I do know that it was a quite a lengthy process for the management and the promoters to, to, to make it work, you know? How was that, though? How was that being in a place that had kind of been shut off from the rest of the world, that obviously there was a lot of uneasy mystery that involved in Russia, not unlike what we're going through right now? Yeah, it was um, it was definitely a culture shock. You know, sometimes you just got to roll with it and you have to accept things that are out with your control, you know? I wouldn't say it was the, the, the greatest of times. It was definitely a kind of achievement for... Um, the management, the label, and promoters who took something like that off. Um, but we as a band, we didn't really get involved apart from kind of turning up and um, performing. The, you know, those guys did the hard work, and we, we were basically the entertainment. Um, but it's, it, it was certainly an eye opener, and certainly very interesting and expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does sound like that, you know, to make all that happen. It is. Uh, luckily, you were in the uh, the decade of decadence, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well. Well. Not. Not in Russia. Not. Not in Moscow. <laughs> no. There was. There was no decadence in Moscow at that time. Our family didn't see any. It was interesting hearing the other bands that you all were playing with over there because I, I guess you know, for them to have found their sound, it was like almost looking through a pinhole to get their influences. Yeah, I'm sure some of that came over on bootlegs and stuff, but, you know, it was um, kind of interesting yeah. to see how the music worked over there. And, and that's the other part, you know, how, how, how did those other bands get along with you all? I mean, uh, were, were you kind of accepted or, or was it sort of skeptical? I don't know, we, we, we met a couple of musicians, um, Bunkle and Gorky Park, and uh, they were more um, sort of heavy rock than what we are, you know. I mean, we, we can be quite heavy as well, but those guys were more more into the, the heavy rock sort of things. You can tell them they've been listening to, you know, a lot of Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and, you know, and then the up-to-date bands at the time, like your Bon Jovi's and Van Halen's and stuff there. So um, they were, I would say definitely more, more heavy rock than what we were. But, you know, here you are in a situation where you're not known 
much over there, if at all. Oh no, no, not at all. Yeah, not at all. And 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 you're representing this cultural thing while you're there. You couldn't crutch on any hits, you know. I mean, it was it had to have felt like, you know, that that bare slate. Like here's a room of you know however many people, and and they don't know any yeah, of these songs. No, we're a new band as far as um, the audience was concerned. They'd never, I don't think, had heard of any of our songs before. You know, I mean, that's uh, that's got to be exciting to a point, though. You know, I hear a lot of bands that you know that just to, just to have to to get that feeling of proving yourself again to make sure that you still got that. I don't know if you ever had that. Yeah, you still got, you still got to start again from scratch. Albeit we were playing in a big massive kind of arena, but you know you did have to start off. You, you know you can't uh, be, be complacent about these things. You've got to. Re- really work, work, work hard, you know, if, if it's not kind of happening, you know, out front of the audience, have not heard your songs, so you've got to go out and, you know, really perform them. Well, I'll tie that back around to the record, too. I, I know, you know, the album was already done in this time, but having a record called Peace in Our Time at this moment, at this time where you're doing something like this, I don't know, did it feel like the stars were kind of aligning to a point? Yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, it's, it was it's quite a big title piece in our time, you know, it's quite a heavy, heavy title to put on a record. It was just a, a very, it was a very strange year that, that year, you know, like I say, with the visiting all these different countries and the tours and stuff, and it was, you know, a change of direction, and there was a kind of, a small backlash with some of the fans that didn't, didn't get what we were doing, you know, and I, I can see that point of view, you know, but, you know, you, we'd, we'd come off the back of three albums that had that sound and that style of songwriting that was more organic and more of what Big Country were about to, to kind of change like that. But I think we had to change, you know, you can't just you can't just stay in that one area, you know. How quick did you feel like you knew how this album was going to be perceived, you know, like towards the next album when you get away from this again, you know, because this, this album seems like kind of an island in, in your discography in that way. Yeah, it's, it's very, very different. And I think the the next record as well was very different um, until we kind of got back on our feet again. You know, you, you have to experiment. You, you, you just can't stay in the same place. It might be safe to stay in the same place, but it gets a bit boring after a while. So, um, and I think as time goes on, you, you, you're, you're playing, your musicianship gets better and your songwriting skills get, get better, or you'd hope they would get better. Um, so you, you just go down different avenues and explore things, you know, and some things work and some things don't. Well, you're still doing that too. I mean, uh, really enjoyed the journey that came out in, in 2013. You're in the studio now. Does that mean you're working on the next record? Is that what's the, sort of the plan right now? I'm mean, working on a, my son, Jamie and I, Jamie plays in the band as well, and uh, we occasionally do um, albums together. You know, this will be a, we did an album before called another anthem for the damned and we're working on a, a second album just now it's just called bruce and jamie watson um, and we're collaborating with uh, an american chap called tom kettable so we're writing songs at the moment uh, but we just brought an ep out online that came out yesterday so we're working on more songs at the moment for for uh, a new album well that's nice timing on the ep then <laughs> i have to check that out. yeah 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 so yeah we're just we're just doing, doing this uh, album but it's it's a lengthy process we were we send files across to America and Tom sends them back and we you know vice versa and then we just get to the point where that song's ready. So we've got three songs online just now. Do you want to do another record under the uh, the Big Country moniker at this point? Um, at the moment, it's, it's kind of very difficult to do because everybody in the band's so busy. Um, and also, Jamie and I, we, we play with another band called The Skids, which Stuart Adamson was an original member of as well. Mm-hmm. So between the Skids and Big Country, 
and doing the Bruce and Jamie stuff, it's really quite busy. Um, and other guys in the country, they, they've also got other projects that they're doing. So it's it's there's there's not enough days in the year to do what we want <laughs> at the moment, anyway. Well, I do enjoy keeping up with you, Bruce, and I thank you for uh, for oh, taking the time to jump back to 88 no, with me here. Thank you very much, Kyle. All right, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Okay, I better get back in the studio and get my guitar back on. <laughs> All right, sounds good. We'll, we'll hear from you soon. Okay, buddy. And my thanks to Bruce Watson of the band Big Country, talking about 1988's Peace in Our Time. And thanks again to all my guests today, Tim Booth of the band James, Steve Kilby of the band Church, and Bruce of Big Country. Uh, hey, if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button right now so you can keep up with all of these interviews. That's uh, Whether you're listening on YouTube, checking us out on Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts from. After that, head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern, where you can also find some bonus episodes of this series. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.